Hello, robots, and welcome to the very first episode of Hannah Yells About Comics. Still remedial studies, but brought to you by Rachel being on vacation and Hannah being all by herself. In this episode, I'm going to talk about Factory. It's a comic that came out in the U.S. in April, but it's actually originally a French comic published in 2007 that's now available in translation. Before we get started talking about Factory, though, I kind of wanted to talk to you about my experience with comics and kind of where I'm coming from with comics. I started reading webcomics as a teenager. Uh, There were a lot of great webcomics, and I think it was really getting established as a genre or a vehicle of delivery at the time that I got into them. I used to read so many webcomics. I still follow Questionable Content, and I still follow Gunner Creek Court, and I occasionally check in with Alguna Shive, but I was there for Nimona, I was there for Scary Go Round, I read a lot of really weird stuff. It was the internet, and I was a teenager, so I don't really know what anyone expected. Webcomics were a lot more approachable for me as a teenage girl because they were free. I also didn't have to go to a comic shop, which really wasn't available where I was from being in the rural Midwest. We had bookstores that had the collected volumes of comics, but those are very expensive. My experience with print comics would... (laughs) My experience with other genres of comics... My experience with other comics wouldn't be more developed until later, but I definitely did buy a volume of Teen Titans, and I didn't buy the first volume of Teen Titans. I bought the fourth volume of Teen Titans because I shipped BB Ray like there was no tomorrow. And let's be honest, I still do, and that's the volume where they kiss for the first time. And obviously, as a teenage girl, that's very important. The other comic I got into when I was a teenager was Sandman, which is an adult horror fantasy comic, and I probably read it a little bit too young, but anyone who has read Sandman can tell you that it really makes an impression on you, and it really, I think even today, sets the bar for me of what graphic storytelling can do. So more recently, starting last year, I started really getting into comics. I read probably around 45 to 50 comic volumes last year. I read everything from Rat Queens to Fables to Hellboy to Watchmen to The Wicked and the Divine, to Low, to Monstrous, to Giant Days. I also read all of Saga that was available. And I read Descender, and I read some weird stuff like Pretty Deadly and Odyssey, spelled O-D-Y-C. I'm not sure I would recommend that one, but I read it, and it was really strange. So there is that. I was able to read so many comics because the library has a program called Hoopla 
which is a streaming service and it does video and audio and it does comics. So I was really able to read more comics than I would have if I had had to purchase them myself or even if I had had to wait for interlibrary loan and (laughs) if I had to actually think about what I wanted ahead of time and then request it versus just being able to get them right away. So if your library has Hoopla, or I know there are some similar services out there, but you should check it out. It will up your comics reading game uh, immensely. I know some people will only do the print, but I found most comics translate from print to digital pretty well. I think one exception is Pretty Deadly, So that's a warning on that. I wouldn't try to read Pretty Deadly electronically like I did. So that should give you an idea of kind of where I'm coming from. Maybe not necessarily my perspective as a critic, but I think you guys know that pretty well from following the show already. Uh, But I'm excited to talk about Factory today. It is by a gentleman named Yasin Elgahori. I I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, and I'm very sorry. I tried very hard to YouTube his name, but he is French, and the French interviewers, they speak so quickly, and they just run all the words together because it's French, and you don't know what's going on, and you just, you have no idea. So I'm sorry. His pen name is Elgo, though, so I'm going to refer to him by that. I hope he can forgive me, because I know he listens to the show. Avid listener. Right. Uh, wink, wink. Like I mentioned before, Factory was originally published in French in 2007. It's published in the U.S. by Titan Comics under their Statics imprint. This is going to be their European imports imprint. They do a couple of other things. They do tie-in stuff with Doctor Who. I think they might have Tank Girl. They don't, I think comics isn't their main business. They do some other stuff, but they do have, they do have comics and Statics Press is going to be their European. I'm excited for that because it's always interesting to get things in translation and get things from other countries and other cultures. I think it's going to be a fun time. So a little bit more about Elgo. The one thing he did that I actually recognized was that he did character design for Futurama. Uh, He's Mobius, who is a, I guess, I haven't, I'm gonna come clean and admit I haven't read anything or looked at anything by Mobius, but he is a famous French comic artist. And so he is Mobius's, like, protege, mentee type deal. Maybe that's why he went for the one word name that's not a name. Kind of a tip of the hat to old Mobius. Eh? No? According to Wikipedia, Mobius worked in the band dessinée tradition, or he was a part of it, more likely, which is really just comics in France and Belgium, but now you have a fancy French term you can throw around at parties and seem cool. So a lot of people are familiar with Band Dessinée through Tintin and Asterix, which are a little bit more light and kid-friendly. I think Mobius kind of represents the opposite side of that coin, where it's a little bit more dark and depraved and all of that good stuff. 
Elgo definitely takes after him in that regard. Factory, I'm going to tell you about the actual comic now. Are you ready? I don't think you are. I'm not ready. The comic is being promoted as Mad Max meets Fallout in the nightmarish vision of life on a dystopian planet, which, you know, I could be about. Uh, furthermore, quoting, quoting here from promotional materials, a band of mutants slog through the harsh deserts of a dystopian planet in search of the factory, the last semblance of civilization left among the wasteland. So yeah, I mean, that's, that doesn't seem unlike Mad Max, and I like a good, I like a good dystopian story. When I went to the comic book store to pick this out, I kind of went over to the indie shelf, and this will give you some insight into the quote-unquote process, but I went over to the indie shelf, and I looked at what was in early issues, and I picked this one because I promised you guys something weird. I also really wanted to try something different, and the other things there reminded me of Paper Girls, or they were from Boom Studios, and... I already trust Boom Studios, so for this first episode, I kind of wanted to take a bigger risk. Bigger the risk, the bigger the reward, right? And I also didn't want to do a media tie-in. I think with media tie-ins, you at least get some idea of what to expect because you're getting it because it's associated with the media that you're already familiar with and love. So there's that. But this one really stood out to me. I have posted a picture of the cover on our social media platform, so you can look at it there. The art really reminded me of Clive Barker, and it turns out that the art is actually by Simon Bisley, and he is kind of famous in his own right as an illustrator. It turns out, because I did my research for this episode, but of course, you know, he's the cover artist. Elgo is the artist for the actual comic. The cover has this blue monkey in a t-shirt and a watch on it, and there's a big spiky vine, maybe it's a tentacle, I don't know, kind of behind him, and then in the foreground with the monkey, the monkey's kind of perched on this red cybernetic spacesuit thing that's all beat up. Anyway, it was cool, and I'd never heard of it before, and that was sort of the point. Uh, I'm educating myself and, hopefully, our intrepid listeners. So I'm actually going to try not to spoil this comic. I know Rachel and I typically have a, we will talk about anything and everything, everything is up for grabs, and nothing is off limits. But I'm going to, since this is me talking about a comic you may or may not want to read in the future, I'm going to try and keep off the major spoilers, but I might slip, and I'm sorry. You might think things are spoilery that I don't think are spoilery, so if you want to go read the comic without any further input from me, now is the time to do that because we're going to start talking about some stuff. And I will tell you that I will probably continue with the comic, but it's because it's only going to be three issues. I was expecting more issues, but it's only going to be three, so it's not that big of a commitment. I wasn't blown away by it, but I also am intrigued and want to know more. So let me talk about why that is. The first thing is the way that this is structured is it's got multiple narrative threads that are winding together. There's the factory with this oligarchical power structure in place that's in charge of everything. They are maybe a little bit corrupt. 
surprising no one, and they are facing some what I will call administrative problems. And we will leave it at that. That is so vague and slightly inaccurate, but that's as much as I can say without, I think, giving away too much. The other narrative thread is this band of travelers who is traveling through this really harsh desert environment. The apocalypse has come and gone. I don't know if it was a slow death or what happened, but they are traveling through this hostile landscape, and there is an ugly baby man who is in charge, question mark. There's also a pair of twin philosophers who've gone kind of mad just from this situation that is very bad, that is their whole lives that they found themselves in. Uh, the other guy is not actually a guy, but he's a pig that used to be a guy. So they are traveling to go see the quote-unquote wizard who does not appear, as far as I know, in this comic. But they are traveling, and at the end, a monkey shows up. And it's the blue monkey. He's not wearing a t-shirt or a watch. Just FYI. Maybe he does later, in later comics. I don't know. I guess I will find out. So I like these two narrative threads. I like when stories are structured like this. And right now, at the end of the first issue, it's not apparent to me how these two threads will come together. And I think that's what's exciting about it. Is you know that they will, but you're not sure how yet. And you're kind of, as a reader, trying to anticipate how this is going to work. You assume that the little band of travelers is going to show up at the factory and the oligarchy will meet them and something bad will happen. This is not an uplifting comic. By the way, it is very dystopian and very unpleasant in that sense. So I'm excited to see what happens with that. The other thing that's really interesting about this comic to me is there are some mystical, magical type things that happen, and they're not like the traditional mystical, or they're not the pretty kind of mystical, magical, or even that magical, I can't really explain it. There's happenings that are not really explicable by science. And I want to know more about this system and how it works and what the implications are. I always think that's fun. I, it's not going to be Harry Potter-like at all. It's going to be much more, more gruesome. And I, w I do want to say that this comic is on the gross side. There, it is, there's some grossness and there's some body horror and there's a couple of different things that are not appetizing and a little bit... It, you don't really want to look at them, and I would place it somewhere between Monstrous and I Hate Fairyland. I couldn't, I read volume one of Fairyland, and I'm like, I can't do this past volume one. We are not reading volume two. So I put it in between, and I am willing to continue with Factory. So I think that's a good sign for you all. No offense, maybe some offense to I Hate Fairyland. It just wasn't my thing, I don't think. Another thing that I wanted to talk about is the genre of sci-fi dystopia and how inherently political dystopian fiction is, no matter what genre you're presenting it as, whether it's a novel or a graphic novel or a short story. I think dystopias are inherently political. I'm sure someone else has talked about this, but when you talk about a dystopia, you 
are, I think, in a sense, assigning blame to someone. A lot of dystopian fiction can be a warning, or it really emphasizes what is not right in society, and identifies the elements that, you know, the author got beef with. And, you know, the fact that there's a white male oligarchy in this comic, I don't think is a mistake or unintentional or anything like that. I think that's very much on purpose. Uh, And I'm here for it. But I also think that Factory, instead of kind of leaning away from the politics, which I think is something that happens in some sci-fi dystopian fiction because, you know, you want the dystopia for the conflict, I think. One series in which I think they kind of lean away from the politics a little bit, even though I think it's still very political just by the nature of the genre, is Hunger Games. But this factory really leans into it. There's a scene, and I can talk about this without ruining too much, there's a scene where Uh, The soldiers from whatever kind of force the oligarchy type people maintain is they are passing out food to what is essentially a refugee camp. But you get the sense that any settlements that are left on this planet are like this. Everyone is living in kind of temporary structures. You know, there's no food there's limited water, there's no, I don't know that there's work, people are just standing in line waiting to receive this food and this water and these supplies from these soldiers, and that's really all you see of the populace. Uh, and the dialogue between the soldiers and the soldiers with the crowd they're handing out food to, I think is a really... It's a really straightforward look at the way that people look at refugees and people in crisis. And it's not good the the way that I think people generally view other people in that situation. So, in a way, even though this comic was originally published in 2007, I still feel like it's painfully relevant in that sense, just with everything going on with the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe and, you know, America's own unwillingness to accept refugees. I think that's going to be important to the comic later on. I don't know in what sense. Everything's sort of in pieces right now, and we haven't started putting the pieces together in the narrative. But you don't spend that many panels on something in a graphic novel or a comic if it's not important. So I'm interested to see where that's going to go. I will say as for the art, because I, I haven't talked about that a lot yet. I did mention the cover. The art is pretty okay. I was not, I'm not disappointed and I'm also not impressed. I mean, we can't all be the magazine issue of Wicked and the Divine, but... Uh, the art is, is okay. It's very orange. It's very orange, and I think that's very intentional. And I think that's a fun thing that comics and graphic novels get to do that doesn't work as well in a words-only kind of format. And that is that use of color. You can talk about things being certain colors in novels and stuff or whatever, 
but it's just not as impactful. And I think I read something somewhere about how brown everything is in the Dubliners for the most part, but I think it's just so much more impactful in in the visual format. And the orange, I think it's supposed to be a little bit eye-searing. You're not supposed to be comfortable when you look at this comic. I do think there's room for that in art and comics. And in media in general, you're allowed to get a little bit uncomfortable. And you should be getting a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. I think everything being orange, though, artistic sensibilities aside, does make it interesting that the monkey that shows up named Makaka is blue. I think that has to be intentional, and I think that flag to say, this is different, pay attention, is, is executed well. I, I like that. Maybe it's obvious and not that exciting to other people, but I like it. The other thing I wanted to talk about really quickly is the other kinds of media that this reminded me of. Of course, I'm getting vibes uh, from Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake. I'm getting some Handmaid's Tale vibes. Uh, yes, I'm a huge Margaret Atwood fan, if you cannot tell. I also really think this was not totally similar to Low, but it definitely had some, some similarities. Low, if you're not familiar with that, is a comic about the world humanity, the sun is expanding, and humanity had to go under the ocean and live in, like, these Atlantis-type structures at the bottom of the ocean to avoid dying of, like, radiation or something crazy. Anyway, this situation isn't sustainable for some reason, and they had to try and find an alternative. So, it reminded me of that a little bit, the limited resources and and the struggle to go on and that scenario. The color palette is also very similar uh, in sections. My one big beef with Woe is for some reason in this future underwater society, uh, sometimes women have like really weird costumes that for some reason it's necessary to see a lot more boob. Not really sure what that's about. I mean, I I have a feeling I know what that's about, but I don't approve. Uh, Secondly, there are some, like, hazmat suit situations in this comic. And for whatever reason, they have high heels. I know that when I am trying not to die in a hostile environment, I really want to be wearing high-heeled shoes. That's really when I feel the most comfortable and the most mobile and able to respond. So they're fired for putting heels on those suits. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. I'm just here to enforce them. But if you like dystopias and you can overlook the heels, which obviously I'm trying to, Low has a really interesting premise, but I just, I couldn't do it. And on that note, you know, I think it's a good place to call it a day. Thanks for joining me for this riveting discussion on Factory. If you pick it up, let me know what you think. You can add us at Remedial Studies on Twitter and we're remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can email us at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. 
And even if you totally disagree or you think my review is wrong for whatever reason, go ahead. I'd love to hear it. If you guys like these episodes where I just yell at you over the internet by myself um, while my cat looks on disapprovingly, let me know and I could be persuaded to do this on a monthly basis. So thanks for joining me, robots. And until next time, I don't know, just stay out of trouble. Bye.